You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about New York City real estate and a generational opportunity that we may be looking at this year. And joining me today is Chris Okada, who's CEO at Okada and Company. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, ready to jump right in and let your viewers know about uh, you know New York City and other metro areas that I think are very uh, discounted right now. Yeah. And you know, I've heard through the grapevine that New York City real estate is fairly desirable and has been a pretty good investment yeah. over the long run. Uh, I read your recent report on commercial real estate in New York City. And obviously it's a very unique situation right now uh, where, where you know, from your point of view, there are opportunities that might not normally be available for investors you know, who are willing to take a little bit of risk. But before we dive into the report, could you give us a brief introduction to your firm? Yeah, sure. Um, Okada & Company, we are a uh, commercial real estate uh, company here in New York City. We do uh, third-party uh, brokerage and advisory work, um, as well as invest and develop properties, mostly in Midtown and Lower Manhattan. Um, and this has been our sandbox, uh, my family. Uh, we are a family office. It's been 54 years uh, started by my father in 1969 and really rode all the waves of globalization and doing highly technical commercial leasing deals and sales and uh, capital markets transactions. Uh, this is my 21st year. And uh, I started uh, shortly after 9-11 um, and uh, through 9-11, the financial crisis and uh, this sort of regional bank crisis and, po and uh, post-pandemic uh, monetary tightening environment, this would be my third sort of uh, down cycle um, in, in real estate. Um, yeah, so 21 years, uh, our firm, we oversee 3 million square feet of third-party leased and, and properties owned. Um, and, uh, yeah, we represent a lot of, uh, fortune, uh, 500 companies that are in the retail and office world, uh, as well as a lot of private, uh, family, wealthy families and high net worth individuals, um, that have, um, needs as far as, uh, acquisition and, or in this market, uh, really our clientele is looking, uh, figuring out how to fill vacancy. Um, and uh, we've had a lot, a lot of success, um, as, as well as a lot of challenges. Um, and that would uh, include up and down the uh, tenant stack and up and down the capital stack. Um, but whenever there's a, a, a real need for answers, that's really the market where you can make a lot of money. And yeah, the, 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 Chris, the bull market and the stock market, they say the bull market climbs a wall of worry, right? So in real estate, if every challenge is answered and everything looks perfect and everything is sunny, where's there going to be opportunity, right? That's when cap yeah. rates would compress to almost, it's interesting. I know you're a true blue family office real estate guy that you measure time 
in cycles. I mean, you mentioned years too, but you, you know, you mentioned you've been through three cycles and to me, that's really important, you know, and especially thinking about family offices and that long-term, you know, uh, patient capital mindset, because I do think that's what we're talking about now, but, you know, we want to dive into the report because as you've already alluded to, there are opportunities available right now. There's challenges right now, which creates those opportunities. But how about New York City commercial real estate historically? Yeah, Has it been a good place to invest? I mean, maybe that's an obvious question. I guess how good of a place has it been to invest historically sure. uh, over, over the decades? Uh, New York City, especially Manhattan, has had a 100% rebound rate uh, every cycle for the last century. Um, and that includes um, many, many d- different asset classes. Um, I'd like to say the 2010s were the absolute peak in retail. Um, and I believe we're probably at the end of the retail apocalypse cycle. Um, and uh, that really was born from um, just, you know, very cheap debt and also um, transition from uh, brick and mortar to online shopping in the last 10 years. Um, that really had a profound effect on Fifth Avenue and on Broadway and on, um, and this wasn't only a New York City thing. It was really a macroeconomic trend. But here in the city, uh, it, uh, prices have rebound, rebounded every single de- uh, cycle um, uh, forever. Um, so that's something important to take note of. Now, if you have the staying power, that's the question. That becomes the ultimate question. And uh, the debt cycles of mortgages are five to seven years to traditionally. I really wish they should have, they should really extend that to 10 to, they have 10 years as mostly life insurance companies, but like a 30 year fixed commercial mortgage. Um, I, I wish there was that product because that would really enhance uh, the values and appreciation of uh, commercial real estate. But uh, yeah, so it's been 100% a rebound rate. Um, and that is um, when I so say- So you're saying about- every, I'm sorry, so every cycle then, you know, there's the the bear market or the downswing, New York real estate recovers to its previous level and then essentially doubles before it enters, before it, you know, starts in a down cycle again. And so it's correct. Keeps correct. every, every like leg up is essentially a hundred percent gain. And there's been since 1900 or, or, you know, a century or however long back we go, there have been countless of these cycles, you know, so it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Okada and company and your family office. That's yeah. that patient capital, you know, making money over those cycles. You you have to have time in the market, right? You really do. And um, uh, I think, uh, and also to be clear, that is the average on the price per square foot of all asset classes on Manhattan Island. That's, you know, if you went very heavy into retail or went heavy into office, it takes a long time for that to recover. But the market, just like every uh, evolving asset class and every new asset class that emerges, it does take time. But as a whole, as property and land values um, in Manhattan, um, it has recovered 100%. Um, and that's why it's important to think about your traditional investment thesis, which is 
diversification, long-term hold, try not to be too heavy in, um, in uh, assets and liabilities. Only in the BRICS, you have to have X percent in cash, uh, and, and you shouldn't be overweight in any one asset class. Uh, even though you, that may be your go-to. So all the traditional investment sort of um, theories and theses um, really hold true in your real estate portfolio as well. And people tend to say you should also diversify in location. So to be overweight in Manhattan and, and to be a 100% Manhattan-centric or New York City-centric investor is also a potential weakness to other threats like global warming or 9-11 uh, or black swan events that specifically hit uh, any uh, specific region, it's also important to think about other locations uh, throughout the world and throughout the country in different states. Um, but, you know, I am a New York City maxi, if you will, and I am a Manhattan specialist. That's the value that I bring to the world. I know every capital stack. I know every building um, in Manhattan, and I and we watch. Uh, we try to watch um, all the uh, the transactions and 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 the deal in our sandbox. And, and uh, yeah, well, your recent report, you know, so you're a Manhattan guy through and through, which I respect. Yeah. And I mean, to me, when I think that this is just my impression, right? I'm not a New York real estate expert by sure. any means, but I know a lot of fortunes have been made or have been grown in New York City real estate. And also in my mind, it's very much uh, prestige real estate, you know, re really anywhere in New York, especially Manhattan. So, you know, my impression would be we tend to trade at more of a premium, probably at lower cap rates. Of course, it all depends on particular sectors, but, you know, so maybe a little more expensive, but at the same time, over the long run, huge opportunity, huge historical returns. Your report mentioned generational opportunity. Yeah. So I guess what's what's the what's the thesis there? Is it just that, you know, interest rates are high enough, market activity is low enough that there might be buying opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise see? Or or what what is creating the opportunity right now in 2023 that wouldn't have been there, you know, sure. X number of years ago? So I love Warren Buffett. He's one of my sort of virtual heroes um, and a lot of investors. And he essentially said in real estate, he doesn't have a sort of a competitive advantage than someone else. And he's a C-corp, so it's difficult for him corporate structurally. But he believes that the best time to acquire real estate is when all liquidity has been removed from the market. And that's essentially what has happened. Um, due to the fastest monetary tightening in, in history um, with the 5% uh, Fed funds rate um, over a 12-month period, um, coupled with the regional banking crisis um, and all the biggest, the top players were uh, First Republic here in New York, and Signature Bank. Signature Bank was mm -hmm. way more aggressive um, in, on the lending, and it took them decades to get that title. Unfortunately, you know, uh, due to run on banks and due to sort of the monetary tightening and other sort of risk management things happening, um, it, it, they went out of favor. 
um, and and they they went under. Um, so liquidity is gone. Um, there is uh, monetary tightening. Those two alone are huge. However, that coupled with uh, the um, the office work from home phenomenon and and everyone sort of doing remote work and only 50% of office space is being utilized. Um, rents have plummeted um, because of that supply and demand. Um, and, and because of that, asset classes um, like office, uh, which represent a huge portion of New York City real estate, uh, has declined in price. Uh, there's no competition um, for that asset class. And you know, so office is a, is is a perfect storm. Other asset classes like uh, residential multifamily real estate is a lot stronger, but it's having it's anyone that had any renovation debt or bridge debt or variable debt really are have felt the pain, and um, so there's that. And then um, alt and finally. I mean, I can go each and asset, each asset class, they all have different sort of struggles, but office is certainly the weakest and the, uh, the most challenging at this present moment. Well, um, I mean, I, Chris, I can see for sure in office Yeah, that to me, whoever figures that out, whoever has the foresight, the vision to put together deals in this environment, I believe they're going to, you know, make a fortune, you know, but yeah. So certainly I see the generational opportunity there. You're, you mentioned like a 50% vacancy rate. Like, of course, that's going to be huge price reductions. I would think, you know, yeah. market price. Are there generational opportunities in New York City outside of office or is it is it mainly? I believe that land, just development, um, being if you have this ambition, to create a 40 story glass tower that's gorgeous and five star weather hotel, weather apartment building. I think that land prices are down significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and that really is a one in one with the interest rate environment and cost of construction. Uh, I think that if so, if you have a desire and you say, you know, I want to execute on this business plan, I've always wanted to have a 50 story tower or 60, 70 story story tower. I think that land prices are, have, have, uh, are half or 40% less than they were just a few years ago. And, you know, the story of New York city really, um, as far as uh, price point, and then as far as total sales, uh, aggregate sales, in New York, though, there are two different sort of functions, uh, and and the peak of the New York City market, as far as volume was concerned, was around 2016. Some say 2015, some say 2016. But that 2015-2016 era, people were. If you were a seller, you made you sold land at 900, 800, even for large parcels, 600 dollars a foot. Today, those are significantly cheaper. Uh, so land, if you wanted to do something, that is a 40% discount. And I think that, you know, they're not building any more land. Uh, so, uh, and, I mean, and to, well, that's interesting, Chris, too, because land, you know, 
it's it doesn't necessarily need to be office right i mean depending on how it's zoned correct if you are patient you could almost i mean you could either have a use for it right away or potentially if you're patient you could say well there might be multiple uses and we'll see you know 24 36 48 months down the road yeah you know so are there are there family offices are there you know you mentioned that liquidity is dried up i guess that that to me the question is there still seems like there's a lot of equity cash on the sidelines yeah. right whether it's family office money or maybe institutional money yeah is that still dry powder i mean or or is that stepping it, in and providing liquidity where debt financing is has really slowed down so that's a great question um as far as all institutional capital uh we tracked something like 300 billion dollars that was raised and this was really uh towards the end of q1 but all of 2022 um and uh part of 21 there was 300 billion dollars raised that was earmarked for north american real estate um and uh uh and that is somewhat i i believe it's like a three or four x compared to 2008 and 2009 there's a lot a lot of liquidity but land is one of the is it's just a straight appreciation play so unless you improve the land um it becomes very challenging so but what the the risk profile of a lot of these funds uh, they may not be equipped or they may not feel that it's a it's a great time to jump into uh, development and they, you know, could find um, existing properties that have a value added uh, investment strategy instead of opportunistic or instead of ground up where they could just buy um, a 300 unit uh, existing apartment building that's just slightly mispriced. Um, and then inc- and then just renovate and value add on that. Um, I'm seeing that that feels more like what they're looking for. I haven't found any ground up people um, because of the um, there's other potential available deals that um, you know that they can put their capital towards that may have a slightly less return or maybe even better return like distressed debt on a, an existing hotel or distressed uh, debt on an existing um, office property that they feel there's meat on the bone or cracked condominiums or, um, you know, so there's definitely when you look at a private equity fund like Blackstone and they just raised $30 billion dollars. Um, they really are looking at every potential asset class in, in a lot of the different markets. So they, they look at 50 states and 50 asset potentials, and then they pinpoint you know, strategies around that. So, I mean, there's so many, wh- whether it's uh, life sciences, whether it's um, warehouse storage, self-storage, um, and that each one of these have like sub-asset classes um, fine art, wine um, in the storage space, um, and, and then to try to create, you know, that 200 to 400 basis point spread that they look for, which I don't know if it's achievable. I mean, you know, they promise their investors, you know, a 2x in five years, and that's everyone's sort of investment sort of goal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to really... Um, 
when, when you model out land, it's, it's hard to do that versus let's just say, let's just buy this apartment building and I'll, we'll achieve a 1.8 X, um, you know, and then, uh, it's, but it's, it's a safer bet. Right. Um, well, on that note, Chris, and it, actually I want to drill into this a little bit, cause you mentioned some of those specific sectors or, you know, subsectors even yeah. different types of storage. You know, it, obviously there's different types of retail, there's different types of multifamily, but in the report, you know, I thought that was interesting because talking about the generational opportunity, you know, office, and we'll talk about office, but there are plenty of sectors in New York city that you classify as low risk, right? So in the yeah. report, you, you had low risk, medium risk, and high risk and then low risk, you know, obviously I'm expecting to see multifamily. I'm expecting to see storage. So I did see those as well as medical warehouses, distribution centers. Um, so really what, what keeps these low risk? Is it just the fact that, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to have very low vacancy that, you know, they're, they're, you know, you're, you're basically built in, you know, 95%, 93%, 90% occupancy. And then the, the supply and demand dynamic just makes sure. them safe bet. Is that what makes them low risk or is it? So I'll give you the institutional answer, uh, yeah. which is uh, basically rate and term. Uh, let's just say you have Amazon and they uh, took out a triple net 20 year lease uh, warehouse. That's 300,000 feet. And they have a corporate guarantee on that for the next 20 years. I feel that institutional capital will bid that all the way down to maybe today a five cap, whereas yeah. in 21, I think someone bought a three and a half percent capitalization rate. And that is just ridiculous. Um, but because of the increase in interest rates, I think that, um, you know, people may seek other sort of uh, ROI, may, maybe a little bit higher. But pension fund money, teachers, uh, you know, policemen, uh, the pension fund world today still require, and they can buy all cash if it's a trillion dollar pension fund or, you know, a $500 billion pension fund, they only require 5% return. So they would be uh, in a, it would be an ideal situation, depending on if they're overweight or underweight now uh, because of uh, the, the environment. Um, they would buy a 5% coupon, essentially, that would, you know, challenge the tr treasury. Um, and um, but they would be interested and that is very low risk. Let's say a warehouse fully leased by Amazon five year. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, a 20 year lease, triple net, fully uh, guaranteed. That is what you would consider pretty low risk. Okay. Uh, or, or like a class A multifamily that's already leased up and that has huge yeah. scale or something. And so th th this, this low risk then, and, and I get it, it's more that from the institutional lens, this is. I mean, if I can be frank, this isn't great value for my dollar as an LP, as like a, a high net worth individual who's making a private investment, I would yeah, think, correct. right? I would think family offices would be looking more towards the medium risk options or the high risk options. Is, is yeah, that core plus or value added. I think that maybe if it is 95% lease, but 
you know, the management wasn't doing their job or it was mismanaged and there could be an immediate pop or there could be some kind of interesting tax savings that they weren't implementing and they could lower costs that way. So, uh, so what are family offices then? So the report, it has medium risk options, high risk options, and we can drill into some of these, but you know, the family office money, the high net worth investor money, are you seeing them gravitate more towards medium risk options where, you know, the core plus is a little, you know, the cap rates expanded a little bit. It represents a little more value or are they looking more into this, you know, opportunistic profile where, you know, is there anything available at an eight cap or, you know, that, yeah. that is appealing? Um, so yes, it's, it's a little bit, it depends on the family office. If mm -hmm. they've been operating for 30 plus years, they're really just looking for, you know, strong opportunities with not a lot of headaches and a medium. Um, they're not necessarily looking for value added 2X or opportunistic 2X over five years or, um, they probably would be okay with um, a, uh, a low teens sort of IRR over five-year horizon or whatever it may be. Um, and, and they're the first movers. Family office and private capital are the first movers. And um, maybe it's a second generation. Maybe it's the son. Maybe it's typically we look for as far as um, on the buy side or the partnership side, um, you know, smart family offices that have, um, you know, a, um, a different angle. And those guys, if they are willing to, to buy distress, um, that, um, you know, they would look at multifamily that is just mispriced. They would look at potential small uh, ground up opportunities because of an emerging market. There's a family office that just bought from a re um, a pretty uh, substantial uh, development of 200 uh, apartments in um, in a section of Queens called Rigo Park. Um, and so they are making plays. Um, and I would like to say it's the family offices and the private individuals that are the ones that are able to take the risk before the herds of all other family offices, all uh, institutional capital come come back. So Blackstone made a, a very valid point of we raise $30 billion for every asset class except office. The mm -hmm. only ones in the market that would roll the dice on office, it's not all that institutional capital. It's a local investor that really understands the, uh, the block or the neighborhood very, very well. Uh, they, it's probably a family office. Um, and so we do see the family offices that are scooping up class A buildings at a 50, 50 cents on a dollar. That's the only, the only people I see that are willing to roll the dice on the high risk or the medium risk. So that's, that's where the liquidity then is truly dried up because to your point, it, even, even a prestige office property in new york is not institutional quality anymore not not on the buy side right because it's going to have really high vacancy or presumably high vacancy whenever leases expire turnover so you know enter and, and and then blackstone you know to your point they raise a huge amount of money some of these other alternative asset managers I don't really hear office much. Occasionally I'll hear it in the context of mixed use or for like a specific project 
you know, uh, like a corporate headquarters lease or something like that, but just, just general, you're right. It's, it's totally out of fashion. Is there anything besides office? Cause you know, looking through the report, it also mentioned hotel. I think hotel and hospitality is really interesting because I guess in my experience, you know, we have work from home now, obviously it's not going away telecommuting, but at the same time, New York city, everybody wants to visit New York city, right? Like take, sure. take a Midwestern guy like me, yeah. you know, like for really, since I was a kid, like every yeah. once, you know, once every seven years or whatever I'd visit, you know, or my family would sure. visit. There's always going to be people that want to go check out times square, whether they're Americans or from overseas. So that's an interesting one to me because it seems so, like the, the, the risk level is elevated, but it's not a same kind of structural change that we've seen with office. I would, I would say yes and no. The rate of which people have returned is somewhere around the 70 to 75, maybe 80% of what it was pre-pandemic. Okay. The, uh, the rate is not because we're missing the business traveler. So New York City was huge. You wanted to be near a, a venture capitalist. You could be from the Midwest, but if you wanted to go on a uh, tour to meet with equity partners or VC companies or private equity firms or even large banks to bring home, uh, you would come and uh, meet people here. And, you know, but now everyone's on Zoom and everyone, you know, even even the financial uh uh, institutions, you know, they're having challenges bringing their C, you know, mid-level and, and lower level people back to the office uh, without having a huge uproar. So because, um, you know, the finance industry and other, you know, tech industries, uh, the, the, the check writers are at home. So they are also uh, not, you know, demanding or, or not asking for the, the potential uh, firms to, um, uh, to meet them in person. So business travel is a huge problem. Um, it's, you know, dried up pretty significantly. And that's the last 15, 20% that all uh, people in, in, in hospitality need. Now there are stories, of course, in Miami, Miami's on fire, um, occupancies up historic uh, levels, rates up historical levels. Um, and so there is a, 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 a resurgence and a renaissance uh, for Miami. But I would like to say, if you look at LA, if you look at Atlanta, Atlanta's doing pretty well. If you look at San Francisco, if you look at Los Angeles or New York City, really the business traveler is the last piece of the puzzle that may not come back so fast. Maybe mm -hmm. never, um, because we can, um, I'm having Zoom calls with people in Korea and Japan and uh, all all around the world. So Zoom, this technology has really, really um, taken out the need for uh, for foreign and, and business travel uh, for business travelers, foreign or domestic. Um, however, done well, I think I think it's really, really, really interesting. If there's a brand behind you, something exciting, um, and there is desire to own a hotel. Um, it's the same as uh, owning a restaurant. 
uh, the five-star uh, brands, it's very challenging to make any real profit margin. But the Subway franchises, you know, the the <laughs> you'll make money on Subway franchises and Burger King and McDonald's. But, you know, the five stars and that I would say is going hand in hand with hotels um, where the three and four stars potentially do well. Um, I think that um, it is still in very much a recovery mode, very much so. Um, Understood. But I mean, to your point, that's really the opportunity, right? Is the, the yeah. challenge and the opportunity are one and the same. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that it takes some time for business travel to come back and there's a question, does it even come back or how much yeah. does it come back? Maybe it never reaches its former peak. You know, Chris, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned family offices looking at deals and, you know, different, you know, different returns from, you know, debt, equity, you know, is, is, do you have a sense, I guess, with private capital, with family offices that are looking at New York City, CRE specifically, are they looking more at debt or equity right now? Because I, I mean, my, my thing is with, you know, with, with private credit and a lot of these debt products, I see a lot of family offices looking at debt in a way that they haven't looked at in, in years and sort of saying, well, if we can get nine, eight, nine, or even 10% from, debt that we think is really, you know, is, is asset backed and is really quite attractive. Why do we need to bother with equity? Yeah, I, um, we're seeing it all up and down the capital stack, whether it be debt, whether it be, uh, prep equity, whether it be, uh, equity, uh, whether it be mezzanine, it really just depends on the person and their strategy. Um, but the, the, the private equity or private um, sort of the private equity for debt uh, capital uh, really ramped up, I'd like to say, over the last five years. Even pre-pandemic, we were seeing a lot of um, family offices create um, debt vehicles um, because of the uh, fixed income sort of approach. Um, but once they start growing, you need the senior lender to come in and let's say a signature bank and say you're very talented at being able to find developers uh, and uh, and properties that you feel are are conservative enough and but you would always have an a tranche which is typically signature bank or first republic or and they would say sure chris you know we'll give you you know we'll give you uh the the total loan is is 10 million sure we'll give you 7 million out of the 10 million you put in you got to guarantee the the payments on everything but we'll be your senior and we'll give you a 4% loan on that and and you know i know that you're going to be you could potentially be charging 8% or whatever it is and you'll make a spread on the entire 7 and you you'll make money so you'll wind up in the teens IRR if you know with that stru structure now there's no A. So now you have to fill out the entire debt stack. Right. Um, so a lot of family offices, sure, they can do little pieces here and there depending on their size, but they are definitely, there's way more competition, even though it's a lot less because all traditional lenders are out. They are definitely competing with private equity funds and private equity firms and, and other debt uh, sort of uh, sort of 
uh, companies. Um, but yes, I would like to say that, yeah, I, if you can figure out an eight or 9% um, sort of coupon to create and that's sufficient, then absolutely there are family offices that are doing that. Um, and, you know, but all up and down, I mean, you can charge a mid teens on a preferred equity position. You don't, you may not even need too much on the, uh, on the profit, but you know, there's family offices that are, are, are creating pref preferred equity and we're, you know, we, we will charge you 15%. I know it's high, but that's the market. And if it mm -hmm. pencils out good for you and it'll be a two year situation. Um, and we may look for, you know, 10% of the profit in addition, or we may not, or we may ask for more depending. Uh, but yes, there are definitely family offices that are getting very uh, knowledgeable and teaming up with other sort of uh, companies or other family offices to syndicate debt uh, or preferred equity or equity or MES. Um, and so I feel like because of the post financial crisis, people got really smart with financial products, mm -hmm. um, private equity firms, family offices in 2008 and two, 2009 to 2010, I did a billion dollars of distressed mortgage sales collateralized by, um, commercial property, mostly in Times Square, Herald Square and, and um and chelsea and, and really in the smack in the middle and my job was to educate wealthy family offices that never bought distressed debt on how to acquire distressed debt on large properties hundred million dollar debt pieces uh four hundred million dollar debt pieces and sort of worked with their legal team to educate them and say, you can get to this property at a 65% discount. If you purchase this $100 million mortgage, give the bank 40 million, they still owe you $100 million, but they're probably not gonna, you know, give, you know, pay you that back. So then there's a pre-foreclosure, foreclosure, deed in lieu foreclosure, and, um, and I had to sort of walk family office patriarchs and their, you know, second generation on how to do that along with their attorney. And that was sort of how I made money in, in the financial crisis. Um, by the end, uh, by 2015, 2018, there, were, uh, there was a, a fund a day that, that launched and a family office a day that launched mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, do debt, you know, after that. Um, and now everyone does that. Um, I feel, um, so it's, it's basically just Chris, what I'm hearing, it's more, I mean, it <laughs> hate to say it's more competitive because on the one hand, we just said liquidity has dried up, but in a way, I, I think you're spot on that, you know, there's more, not, not every family office is sophisticated, but, but more of them are. And some of the strategies we've talked about, you know, some of them are, specializing in one type of asset class or one type of deal structure or following that strategy. And it's, it's, it's more something that they're familiar with. And, and to your point, private debt is actually pretty competitive, but I guess my point is obviously it's competitive doing deals, but from the investor's perspective, 
the risk reward profile looks pretty good, you know, for, from yeah. it, from it, whether I'm at, whether I'm a family office, you know, cause family offices are also LPs and funds, right. They don't just yeah. do direct deals. Sure. And so I think some of them are looking at private credit or debt deals, even where they're a limited partner, they're getting eight or 9% and they're saying, you know what, we're going to wait on real estate to fall a little bit further because they like doing direct deals, but they want to see a seven cap or, or something very, very attractive to, to buy in? I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's been the model. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting though, when you, he- when you hear a family office you've known and they're like, by the way, we do loans, you know, and it's <laughs> sort of like, you know, the competitor is JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America when you go in and they have a whole, deck and they and you understand it's a well-oiled machine and right you know versus a guy a secretary that sends you your uh, invoice uh, that you've paid you know it's it's (laughs) it's interesting it's it's the wild west when it comes to a not only getting the money um and closing on the loan um and that but also to sort of asset manage the loan and then you have questions like hey where's my statement from june one you know like oh uh we'll get that to you shortly you know it's yeah i well i you're you're talking about family offices now you know it's it they're all over the map in terms of sophistication in terms of strategy in terms yeah. of efficiency execution. and reporting you know tax Hey, yeah. where's my where's my uh, interest payment for 2022? Uh, where's my tax form? <laughs> oh, we're working on it. You know, whereas yep. uh, you know uh, the other banks will send it out, and you'll for sure have it before February one. You know, where it's sort of like uh, it's it's a question mark when you'll get the uh, interest uh, um, sort of your 1099 for interest payments. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I have to say it's always, you know, an adventure, right? Working with family offices and speaking with managers, speaking with patriarchs and matriarchs, you know, they each have their own idiosyncrasies. And I think to your point, you know, the report that you wrote, as well as the conversation we've had, to me, it's just interesting in this market environment, there there are so many challenges and yet there are all these different opportunities to see the different families, to see different investors pursuing different strategies versus, you know, four, four years ago or whatever, where it was kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, yeah. This to me, this kind of a time period is a lot more interesting. And obviously at Okada and company, you have, you know, your, you have your fingers on the pulse. And, yeah. and that being said, Chris, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Okada and company and all of your services? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm on all social media platforms at Chris Okada, O-K-A-D-A. Um, and our website is okada.company. Um, so it's it's very, very easy to find me there. Um, yeah, I, I will say that there, this is one of those times where I feel that's why I wrote this report. It's called from fear to fortune because, you know, liquidity is pulled out. Yes. It's scary. Where are you on the risk profile? Where do you want to be on the return profile? And I have not seen, uh, you know, 
returns and spreads this wide as far as what people are asking. Um, on multifamily, I just got a flyer for a 10% capitalization rate. Yes, it's in the Bronx. Yes, it's affordable housing, and you may have to deal with um, maybe a maintenance issues, maybe arrears or whatever. The same thing you deal with with all affordable. But I've never seen that before. I haven't seen a 10 cap. I yeah. haven't seen a seven and a half cap retail cash flowing. Yes, it's small. I saw a small deal. I was like, oh, this is a tiny deal, a couple million bucks, but it's a seven cap in a pretty good area. I'm shocked. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing all kinds of really interesting things. Um, and then for the risk maxis, trying to roll the dice on office, it's not rolling the dice and maybe necessarily filling up the building back with office tenants but what else what else can you do to fill up and create a rent roll is there a conversion play maybe maybe you can believe in that maybe um maybe you have a tenant in pocket and you can sort of you know put them in a building and buy it um or it's you know it's really about being creative and this is where creativity, gumption, um, and then, you know, the downside risk. If you're buying, if you're an all cash purchaser, uh, I mean, sky's the limit because, you know, this is the only time where it's sort of like, wow, I found a 6.7 cap in a great location. But if I take six and a half percent debt, I'm really only making a 5% cash on cash. Maybe I should just buy all cash. Mm -hmm. and, and and try to, you know, beat out our competitors and get a seven cap. Uh, and again, it's not easy. And the reason why it's not easy is because a market like this sales volume plummets uh, because no one wants to sell. And here's a quick New York City stat for you. In, a gr in, a, in an average year, 7% uh, of uh, properties sell in New York City. 93% do not. In a down market, it's something like 3% of the of properties sell less than or less than 3%. Because why would a seller, let's say he's owned the property since 1995. I don't care if he, you know, moved out, moved to Florida, and he's not going to sell for half the amount that he could have gotten four years ago. He might as right. well wait and see where am I, where is the market going to be in 24 months, 18 months, 36 months. I'll hold on. We don't have a lot of debt. Um, totally. And so the market is probably going to see a record low number of transactions in all assets, single family homes, apartment sales, condo and co-op sales, um, Hotel sales, office sales, apartment building sales, warehouse sales, industrial of every kind. I think that this is a market that you only sell if you have to. Right. And that's why it gets challenging because you're you because what people do is they they all of a sudden they hear in the newspaper they're like oh you know uh, Chris Okada says you know all these buildings are half off that's my offer half off but then. You know, you think that every property it deserves to be half off, but every property is not the same and every seller is not the same. And um, that's that's I Chris. Yeah. And I have to say that's never been more true than it is 
this year that you know every property is a little different every strategy is a little different there's just more divergence you know it, it, but to your point even if that volume is low might be at a historic low this year there are still generational opportunities for enterprising yes. investors enterprising family offices who are willing to take on some risk and to be creative I think we got to leave it there because we've run out of time, but I want to remind our viewers and listeners that our show notes are always available at wealthchannel.com. And I'll be sure to link to Chris's uh, social media profiles, as well as the Okada and Company official homepage. Chris, thanks again for joining the show today and sharing your insights on New York City real estate. Thanks, Andy. And uh, I hope um, you know your viewers learned something today. You know, I'm sure we did. So I'm sure we did. I learned a lot. Yeah. Thanks again. Okay, take care. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.